0: Hello everyone and welcome to the Ultimate Sports Mashup, where we discuss insane sports matchups that would only happen in our wildest dreams. We each select one of the very best sports teams in history and match them against each other to see who would come out on top. From the pros to the underclassmen, football, basketball, and everything in between, with a totally even playing field before us and our imaginations to help us guide our respective claims, who do you think would be the ultimate champion? And Doug Wilson rifles it, rebound, oh, what a save by Patrick
1: Moore. you got to see that one again a couple of times, folks. Esposito starts out slowly, up to his own blue line, up at center, over on the left wing of music Yusik over the blue line, Yusik
0: getting in front, he shoots it, roll, it's good for Esposito. Hayville for Blake, got a lane, lets it go, shot, Score.
1: Front Sanderson tried a shot that was wide and keen and cleared, him,
0: but not off. Bobby Orr behind the net of Sanderson to Orr! Bobby Orr! The Boston Broad! The Broad the cup! Thank you so much for joining us on the Ultimate Sports Mashup. My name is Jay, your host, and as always across from me, I have my co-host, Cam. How are you doing today, Cam?
1: Jay, i am doing pretty damn good what's up jay what is up ultimate sports mashup listeners uh yeah man everything's good over here dropping the puck again tonight we got some hockey so um you know a nice change of pace for us we haven't been in the hockey realm in a few weeks so uh this one should be fun we got a couple all-time greats again but yeah i'm good i i think it's always nice when i Get a lot done during the day, and then I can just kind of relax at the end of the night with you and kind of talk a little bit. It's, you know, there's like virtually no stress. So, uh, yeah, everything's good over here. How about you?
0: I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Yeah, I'm pretty excited to chat about hockey again. My, as we are doing more matchups on the ice, my, my love for the sport is growing. And I think, you know, when the reason, you know, that we're, we've chosen to bring it back this week is the night of. You know, the night that we we're recording, just last night, the NHL opener happened, and so we got a couple of great games, and by the time this comes out, you know, a lot of teams will have had their first or second games played already, so we wanted to coincide with the start of the NHL season and and celebrate that. You know, we kind of want to stay, you know, like our <laughs> our sports podcast is the opposite of topical, but we want to, you know, theme it a little bit, you know, so you can expect more hockey during the hockey season, baseball, during baseball, et cetera, et cetera. So, but yeah, no, I'm, I'm really excited to talk about these teams too. Yeah. I love
1: the groove that we're in though. Like you said, um, you know, kind of we're in, sometimes there's a little lull in between sports where, all right, let's just talk about football because we, we just love it so much and that's totally fine. Yeah. And cause we know mm-hmm. our listeners do too, but right. Hockey season's underway. Uh, like Jay said last night, the uh, Pittsburgh Penguins beat the defending Stanley Cup champs, the Tampa Bay Lightning, six to two. And then the newest team in the NHL, the Seattle Kraken. I think we mentioned them in one of our previous episodes. Just that, um, you know, they were a new team. This was going to be their first year. They had a tough loss against the Vegas Knights, three to four. But I'd say overall a good night of of opening hockey, a good opening night of hockey, I should say, and. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just love hockey. And you're I think you guys are gonna hear and feel Jay's love for hockey kind of shine through this episode today because he got to study one of the greatest teams ever. And kind of, I would say, one of the the, the pioneering teams in hockey in the Boston Bruins, especially this seventy-one team. So yeah, man, I'm I'm excited for this one for sure.
0: Yeah, we're gonna be talking the 71, 72, Boston Bruins taking on the 2000-2001 Colorado Avalanche. So not quite right out of the gate expansion team, but we are talking about, you know, a team that had success pretty early on in its life. So, you know, that that's kind of fun that we get to talk about the Avalanche when we've got the Kraken starting off as a team. And we had the, you know, we talked about the Knights earlier in our own season. And of course, you know, our couple seasons into their own franchise. So Yeah, no, I think we've got a couple timely ones, and I'm just going to leave it at this, but if you are a longtime fan of the Ultimate Sports Mashup, you will know why both me and Cam are happy we're not talking football this particular episode after the last weekend that we both had. So, Cam, do you want to get us started with some head-to-head matchups? (laughs) Yeah,
1: let's just bypass talking about the Raiders and the Colts blowing a huge game. Everybody knows So let's talk about the head-to-head stats. We've got uh, a couple good ones. Like Jay said, this Colorado Avalanche team hasn't been around forever. They were an expansion team. And these teams first met on November 20th, 1979, when the Avalanche were the Quebec Nordics. And Boston would win that game 5-3. They do, however, you know, they've met a lot of times. 159 times, in fact. Boston is ahead with the slight lead. Uh, with the record of 79 wins, 65 losses, and 15 ties. So it's still pretty close. There's room there for Colorado to kind of storm back and maybe even that, that score up a little bit. And then in the playoffs, these teams have met 11 times. Boston leads there. It's a little bit closer, six games to five. But interestingly enough, all 11 matchups were before 1995 when the Avalanche were still the Nordics. So they haven't seen each other in the playoffs since. Um, obviously Boston has been back Colorado, not so much, um, but that's okay. That's why we're talking about the glory days of Colorado in this matchup. So, uh, yeah, obviously for me, I'm hoping things go a little bit better in the mashup, but, um, it's going to be tough. Jay's got a squad. Jay's got a squad. And, uh, and so do I, this is probably one of our more talented teams on both sides and, uh, should be exciting.
0: Yeah, I would definitely say so. Yeah. I think both of these, teams are some of the best of the best honestly so not just hockey but period you know across all the sports you know I didn't realize you know I you know helped put this matchup together behind the scenes and I was just basing it off of you know like we've never had a team from Colorado and we've only talked about the Celtics from Boston even though it's this huge sports town so like I wanted to bring Boston in and found these two teams and didn't realize that top 20 top 30 teams all time but the both of these were so yeah no i'm i'm super excited to dive in i think we've stumbled into something pretty good here but i'll kick things off by talking about the 71 72 boston bruins and a little bit about their story The Bruins had a record of 54, 13, and 11. They would finish first in the Eastern Division. At the time, the NHL was divided into the East and to the West, and so the Bruins were part of the East. The 71-72 NHL season, the Bruins were one of 14 teams in the league at this time. So the league was expanding pretty much every couple years. You were adding a couple teams. You know, I think the year before, two years before, there was 12 teams. And a couple years after this, it was 16 or 18. So it was growing at a pretty rapid pace at this time. The popularity was increasing quite a bit. But the Bruins were a huge part of that. They were a team that had been in the dumps for a long time. They had not won a championship for decades and decades and decades and Boston at the time, you know, wasn't this great sports town. The Celtics, you know, the, you had you had your great Celtics squad and but the NBA wasn't at the height of its popularity. The Patriots were abysmal. The the Red Sox were in the middle of their, you know, what, 100-year drought or something to that effect. So, like, it just, it wasn't the sports town. The Bruins really are part of what kicked that off, you know, with Bobby Orr, whose name you are going to be hearing a lot, whose name I had heard some before learning about this team, but I've gained a tremendous amount of respect for over the course of researching this 71-72 squad and just this era of the Boston Bruins is absolutely incredible. So... To get into actually what happened during the season, like I said, 54 wins, pretty dang good. Good for first in their division, which basically was their conference, and the Bruins got the number one seed. They would play the four seed, the Toronto Maple Leafs, in the quarterfinals. This was the 12th time that these teams met in the playoffs, with Toronto winning eight of the last 11. The lone win for Toronto in this series was by OT in Game 2, so the Bruins came out and dominated in the semifinal, they would win four to nothing over the St. Louis Blues. These teams had previously played in the Stanley Cup finals in 1970. 1970 is gonna be the year that if you know anybody or you do remember this year in NHL and you were a fan, then you will probably remember this Bruins team. You know, all of it, you know, was you know, they won two out of three in three years. So they won 1970, they won 1972. 1970 is probably going to be the one that you remember because that's really where they came out of nowhere and won the, won the Stanley cup and absolutely dominated that year. That's when they started setting records and being this offensive presence. But in 1970, they had beat the blues um, also four to nothing in the Stanley cup finals. And then once again, they would beat them here in the semifinals. Now that the blues were over in the East division and this was a knockout blow because they would beat the they would beat the Blues six to one, ten to two, seven to two, and five to three in those four games. So this team, just to give you a sneak preview, can score like crazy. Yeah, and then you have your Stanley Cup Finals. They would win four two over the New York Rangers. Bobby Orr would tally four goals and four assists in the six-game series, and Cheevers would. Cheevers, the goaltender, would pitch a shutout in the series-ceiling Game 6 match. So, absolutely dominated the playoffs. You know, I'm not going to say it was no problem because it's never no problem, right? But absolutely dominated. They had to come back after not winning the Stanley Cup the year before. It's very lucky, very coincidental that they did not get three in a row. This Bruins team was that good during this stretch of years. But... They did win it this year, the year that we're talking about, the record that we're talking about. So want to talk about the coach, want to talk about the players that actually made it happen. So we have head coach Tom Johnson. He played for the Montreal Canadiens and Bruins as a defenseman for seven, 17 total seasons, winning the cup six times as a player. Damn. In 1970, he would be inducted into the Hall of Fame as a player. He'd win it a seventh time as assistant GM with the Bruins in 1970, and then his eighth time as the Bruins head coach the year that we're talking about today. By the end of his hockey career, he would spend more than 30 years with the Bruins organization in some capacity. And I say in some capacity because he wasn't a coach for that long. He was almost sort of like a a multi-year interim coach for this Bruins team. Because after they won the Stanley Cup, there were some stumbles, they had some players leave, they weren't really competing for the finals after 72, the year that we're talking about, they had some big names go over to the World Hockey Association, a burgeoning league that rivaled the NHL for about a decade, I think. And so you had a lot of key players move over to that league, actually, um, including you know one of the guys in particular I want to talk about today. Tom Johnson, coach for a couple of years, nothing too significant, but huge part of this Bruins organization. So, I'm going to start with centerman Derek Sanderson. This is the guy I was talking about because he played the third line, the defensive-minded line of the team. He wasn't an all-time great. You know, he's not in the Hall of Fame. He wasn't an all-star, but he still put the puck in the back of the goal, and he did what he needed to do. But he, he was the personality of the team. You know, he had some party vibes. Going on, man. (laughs) Derek Sanderson, you know, the closest equivalent that everyone kept coming up with because the Jets were also successful at the same time, was Joe Namath. So, you know, if you don't know Sanderson, which I, you know, I don't particularly blame you, especially if you're not a hockey fan, just put Joe Namath in hockey pads and you're all set to go. And so Derek Sanderson, you know, brought the you know, brought some life to this team and you know, had that key assist in to win the 1970 playoffs in game four, to win the 1970 Stanley Cup in game four, he had the assist to Bobby Orr to win that game. So, you know, he is enshrined in Bruins and Boston history because of that singular moment. Even though it was a game four series that they absolutely had under wraps, they still, they, you know, the, that was the winning moment. So that's what matters. But Sanderson, really interesting guy. Uh, he had 25 goals, 33 assists, and interestingly, seven shorthanded goals, which was good for number one in the NHL this year. And so he's able to, you know, make the most out of a bad situation, essentially, I think is a good way to put it. So, you know, you could definitely see something out of him in this matchup. Then onto a Hall of Famer, you have your other centerman, your first liner, you have Phil Esposito. He had 66 goals and 67 assists absolutely incredible bomb numbers his older brother is a fellow hall of fame goalie for the nhl tony esposito who he he played against many times and i just had to mention this as an older brother myself is that apparently in my research he always got the best of his little brother sure which did. i thought was hilarious. I thought that was fantastic.
1: <laughs> that's an awkward dinner, isn't it? After the game. Yeah, yeah,
0: you bet. I mean, you're both in the Hall of Fame at this point. I'm sure everything's just fine. <laughs> in 1969, a few years prior, he had become the first player ever to score more than 100 points in a single season in the NHL. So that's where the they, they changed the NHL with how offensively minded they were. You know, you know, before it wasn't a slow sport, it never really was because of how fast you you are going on the ice, but these guys cranked it up a notch. They took it to another level. And Esposito was a huge part of that. Left winger Johnny Busick, another Hall of Famer, aka the Chief. He had 32 goals and 51 assists this season. He had been with the team since near the start of his career in nineteen fifty seven. And had suffered through many rough years in the sixties. He was usually one of the team's top scorers during the entire sixties. And so I'm it was very cool to learn about him and how he was able to stick with the team and then be there when Bobby Orr got there and you know changed the sport and be successful. But he's the vet. He there's a reason he's the chief. You know, he is the guy in charge, and he's you know somebody that everybody else can depend on. Johnny Busick, absolutely stellar guy. Then you have right winger John McKenzie, an all-star this year, one of the few non-Hall of Famers I'm going to talk about here. Uh, he had 22 goals and 47 assists. He had the second highest shooting percentage on the team with 16.5%. Over a four-year stretch, he was consistently the fourth best scorer on the team behind the rest of the Hall of Famers. So, If I'm, you know, fourth in line behind Bobby Orr, Johnny Busek, and Phil Esposito, that's still pretty dang good.
1: Yeah, I'll take it.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, John McKenzie was making it happen when the rest of the guys couldn't be on the ice. Then I have to give a shout out to another all-star defensive man, Dallas Smith. Eight goals, 22 assists. Uh, Easy to overlook because he's, you know, a defenseman on the same team as Bobby Orr. But he helped this team lock down the net and you know played a pivotal role, obviously, making the All-Star game. So I knew I had to give him a shout. Then Bobby Orr, the other defenseman, Hall of Famer, All-Star this year. Simply put, for now, one of the greatest, if you haven't heard the name for whatever reason, one of the greatest, sorry, the greatest defenseman ever to play the game, top five player of all time. So going to be talking about him a lot in a little bit here. Then you have goalie Jerry Cheevers. He had a 9.20 save percentage, two shutouts during the season, a 27-5-8 record on the season, and during the season, I will leave you with this, my very last point on my roster, he set an NHL record that still stands today with 33 straight undefeated games. Absolutely incredible.
1: Damn, that's that is really good. Some goalies end the season with 33 wins, you know, whether it's injury or whatever, but... That's impressive. That's impressive. Hall of Famer for a reason, and uh, yeah, it's a star-studded lineup. Like we were, we were talking about, it's totally this team and these players were pioneers in the game. So much fun to watch. A lot of fun to uh, you know to learn about too. I knew about some of them beforehand. Play a little bit of NHL in my spare time, you know. So these guys are over there. They're they're on the screen a lot. But yeah, it's going to be tough. That this Colorado Avalanche team has their work cut out for them for sure. But, uh, you know, without further ado, I think I'll get into the squad now and uh, just see how they stack up. So I've got the 2000-2001 Colorado Avalanche. They finished with the record of 52 wins, 16 losses, 10 ties, and 4 overtime losses. Good enough for 118 points. And that was a first place finish in the Western Conference Northwest Division. And... Um, you know, i like to try to kind of give the listeners and UJ, you know, an idea of where the team came and what was just going around in the league. And, uh, so right here, this 2000 year, there was the NHL expansion draft. So it was the inaugural season for the Columbus Blue Jackets and the Minnesota Wild. So, you know, interestingly enough, Jay, the year that Jay is talking about 71, 72, they had some teams forming coming into the NHL. Um, Or at least changing up the playoff format as well. And same thing with me. New teams were coming into the league. It was getting bigger. Hockey was really starting to ascend uh, in the early 2000s. And just to kind of tell you, too, where this Colorado Avalanche team was, to start the season, they had plus 600 odds to win the Stanley Cup. And that was good for second, tied with the Dallas Stars, the New Jersey Devils, and the St. Louis Blues. And unsurprisingly the defending Stanley Cup champion the Detroit Red Wings you know they had the best preseason odds to win at plus 450 and these were the glory years for the Colorado Avalanche this team had made the playoffs six years in a row leading up to this season and they won the Stanley Cup in 1996 so early and often these guys were winning it had to have felt good I'm I'm sure it did but that wasn't enough for them they wanted to win and a few years later they would get their Stanley Cup but not before losing in the Western Conference Finals in back-to-back seasons, both by the Dallas Stars and both in Game 7. So just a total heartbreaker, man. You're glad you made it. You're glad that you, uh, you know, proved that you can get to Game 7. But back-to-back losses, that's tough. But this team full of future Hall of Famers, you know, they were ready to, horse, to hoist. Lord Stanley, uh, in the 0-1 season, and that's exactly what they did. So this is their their trail here. This is their trip to the playoffs. They started in the Western Conference quarterfinals where, you know, they would kind of blow over the number eight ranked team, the Vancouver Canucks. They swept them four games to zero. All games were pretty close, but, you know, they were in control all four games. Then they would get on to, then they would make it to the Western Conference semifinals, where it was a little bit closer, a highly contested series. It went seven games, with uh, the Avalanche winning four games to three over the number seven ranked L.A. Kings, and the Kings actually defeated the Detroit Red Wings four games to two in the quarterfinals. So they, I'm sure they were pumped. You know, they were pumped. They had beaten the defending uh, champions, but a couple familiar names too. Luke Robitaille. We talked about him in episode 13 with the Red Wings. Um, he was a stud. He was on the Kings this season and, uh, you know, Hall of Famer we talked about. And not only that, but one of the players that is on my roster started the season on this Kings roster. And that's Rob Blake. Um, he was on their roster before eventually being traded to the Avalanche on February 21st, 2001. So pretty Oh wow! close to the end of the season. I think it was 13 or 14 games. So um, I remember... Actually, Stuart Scott, there was a video that I watched of Stuart Scott giving the information on SportsCenter to all the fans, right? The rich keep mm-hmm. getting richer. That is what he said. And that's exactly what happened. Robert Blake leaving that LA Kings team, who were a total contender, obviously making it to um, you know, the Western Conference Finals, or I'm sorry, making it to the semifinals, but that would really catapult the Colorado Avalanche. That was their last piece that they needed, if they really even needed another piece, to be honest. Um, but that was the last piece that they really needed to solidify their chances at winning a Stanley Cup. And uh, last but not least, you had Hayduke, Blake, and Drury all with three goals in the series. So everybody can score on this team. That's a theme that um, you know I'll get into a lot later. But after that, you know, intense seven series or seven game series, then we're on to the Western Conference Finals, where they would win four games to one over uh, the number four ranked team, St. Louis Blues. And the last three games all went to overtime. So they were tightly contested matchups. Both goalies were doing their thing. Colorado was in control the whole series, scoring 46 points to St. Louis's 29. Um, And that's going to lead us to the Holy Grail, the Stanley Cup Finals. And man, if you thought the first seven game series was intense, this one was way more intense. They would win four games to three over the New Jersey Devils. And that is a team that we've talked about before. A star sided lineup on both sides. Um, you know, a series that you, even if you weren't a fan of either one of these teams, you're going to tune in to watch. A lot of hard checks, <laughs> plenty of penalties, and of course, another intense Game Seven. And Captain Joe Sakic, I'm going to be talking about him a lot, just like Jay is going to be talking about uh, Bobby Orr. He did his thing. He scored four goals, five assists, good for nine total points. So. Um, you know, this team I'll get into too, was, was battle tested. They played a lot of really good teams in the playoffs. So that kind of just ensured that this is one of the greatest teams of all time. One of the greatest playoff performances of all time. Now I'll get into, uh, the head coach, his name's Bob Hartley. And unlike 90% of our other matchups, um, including this one, because Jay's head coach was a hockey player. Hartley never played a game in the NHL. Um, he just, he just never did. I think he was more of a, a mind of hockey instead of a, a physical player of hockey, which is fine because you, you really need both. And, uh, he did start his coaching career early on for a junior A team in his hometown of Hawkesbury, Canada, while also working full time as an assembly line worker. So had to throw that out there. Hardworking man. Um, But it also kind of shows you that maybe he didn't really think he was going to make it to the NHL or make a huge career out of it. He just wanted to start, help out a local team, probably somewhere where he played as well. But it didn't take long for him to make a name for himself. And he made it to the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League, where he coached Laval Titan with an 81-52-7 record in two seasons. So totally blowing teams out. And uh, just putting in the work, putting in the work, probably clocking in in the morning at at the the assembly working job and then, you know, working nights with his team. So got to respect that. You know, then his next stop would be in the AHL, the American Hockey League. He began as an assistant coach for the Cornwall Aces. And once that, the head coach, uh, Jax Martin, kind of made his move to the NHL, got his call up and he went up to the Quebec Nordics. Hartley also took over that team and, uh, you know, began guiding the Aces to division titles. He won two of them in three seasons. So once the head coach kind of bounced, he seized his opportunity and did well. Did very, very well winning two titles in three seasons, like I mentioned. And then uh, once, though, the Nordics changed to the Colorado Avalanche, that changed their affiliate as well. And the affiliate was now known as the Hershey Bears. And Hartley took over that team and again was just, he, he won. he Winning early and often, people are going to recognize that. No matter what level you're at, people are going to recognize that. And if you're in a good enough program that is steadily bringing players up to the NHL, you're going to make it. That's what happened. Um, Hartley got his call to join the Colorado Avalanche. In 1998, after leading the Bears to four consecutive playoff appearances and winning a Calder Cup. So, Hartley got his call up in '98, led that Colorado Avalanche team to a 44 28 and 10 record in his first season. So, talk about just, I would imagine, stress. Um, You know, your first season, you're coming up, you have to perform well, right? Job security is crazy. Once you get to to major sports, but he did just fine that 44, 28, 10 finish good for first in the Northwest division. His team would finish first in their division three more times all in a row. And then eventually winning the Stanley cup in the season that we're talking about. And I'm about to go into my roster here with all of the hall of famers and all-stars, but Hartley was an all-star himself. He was the assistant coach in the 2000, 2001 all-star game. So, um, yeah man, this this these lineups are great. You guys, if you're hockey fans, you know these teams, you're gonna enjoy this. Here is the roster. I'm gonna start with the man of the hour for me. That is the captain, the center, Joe Sakik, first team all-star. He played in all eighty-two games, just a fucking workhorse, a stud. Um, fifty-four goals, sixty-four assists, uh, and then a plus minus of forty five. And those goals, all 54, that was good for second in the NHL. But I don't want to uh, spoil the fun, so I'm going to talk more on the captain a little bit later. Now on to another center, Peter Forsberg. He was a first-team All-Star Hall of Famer as well. Peter the Great, they call him. Just a consistent player, a guy who left it all out on the ice and you know was a little bit more of an enforcer than well, a lot more of an enforcer than Joe Sackick. But yeah, Peter the Great played in 73 games this year, 27 goals, 62 assists, and he had the second most points on the team with 89. Unfortunately, he had just, I would say it's kind of a freak accident. He had to have surgery to remove his spleen after it ruptured, most likely during that uh, game seven in the LA Kings series. So with that Forsberg was out for the rest of the playoffs, a huge huge blow. Um, I feel like we can joke about it now because he's okay, but the way that the team and the fans were kind of reacting was like like Forsberg just died basically. Like all the all the fans and signs were going to miss you like it was kind of a little morbid for a little bit, but he quickly told, you know, the team, the fans, "Hey, we still have this whole squad of players. Don't worry about me. I'll be okay." And and he would. He would go on to play again after that, um, you know, had an injury-riddled career. But, yeah, still made it to the Hall of Fame. Then we've got uh, the first winger I'm going to talk about, left winger Alex Tangay. I nicknamed him Steady Eddie. I'm sure his teammates did too. Just a super consistent player. You knew what you are going to get from him night in, night out. He played in all 82 games. He racked up 27 goals, 50 assists, and... 39 even strength assists, which led the team. So obviously even strength, everybody's on the ice. He's just a guy that you can count on. He put the puck um, in the hands of his scorers, and he still scored himself when he needed to. But then the next winger, we've got right winger, all-star man, Milan hey Duke, First team, guy was a stud too. I remember playing, I've talked about this before, but I remember playing um, NHL Hits and Heyduk was one of the guys in there. He was a beast. But um, he played in all, not all 82, but close. He played in 80 games this year. Scored 41 goals, 30, 38 assists, and his 16 assists in the playoffs actually led the team. So super consistent. Um, he didn't stop in the regular season. He continued that throughout the playoffs. After him, it's time for our defensemen. And I've got two great ones two Hall of Famers, and uh, two All-Stars. I'm going to start with Rob Blake. I talked about him before, second-team All-Star this year. He played uh, 54 games with L.A., where he racked up 17 goals, 32 assists, and then got traded after the All-Star break pretty close to the end of the season. 13 games with Colorado. He still managed to score two goals and eight assists. And you heard it a couple times throughout the, the videos and stuff that we watched. He was the Yarmir Yager of defensemen, so he was the best of the best. He was a hard hitter. He was an enforcer, but he was very, very quick and very smart on the ice. A lot of defensemen just, I think, get in their head that they need to, they always need to be hitting, looking for the big hit, in which he definitely did, but he knew when the time was to hit, when to pass, when to shoot. So uh, Rob Blake, a lot of respect for him, played with him in the, uh, the NHL hits as well. The second defenseman, um, you know, this guy was a huge part of this season and kind of the face of this team this year. And that is defenseman Ray Bork, first team all-star, Hall of Famer, and yeah, this season was best remembered for the 40-year-old defenseman quest to win his first Stanley Cup after 22 seasons in the NHL, which at the time was a record. It was the longest drought uh, without winning a Stanley Cup, and that was 22 seasons, but that didn't stop him, the guy played like <laughs> like a young player, he played in 80 games, 80 games, he missed two games in his 22nd season, which is unreal, Um, definitely not a huge goal scorer, but, um, you know, he had the assists, 52 assists, seven goals, but his 31 power play assists led the team, so I think his years throughout, you know, really helped him Kind of know what to do with the puck at all times. He holds the NHL record for most goals, assists, and points by a defenseman. Then we've got two more players here. Left winger Chris Drury. Definitely had to mention him. He played in 71 games, 24 goals, 41 assists. His two game-winning goals uh, was good for second on the team. And then last but not least, the goalie, a guy that I'm going to talk about in one of my claims of fame, Patrick Waugh, Hall of Famer. First-team All-Star, played in 62 games this year, so I feel like that's a little low. But for a goalie, maybe it's not super-duper low. Um, you know, you're taking a beating back there, depending on how much you're traveling, stuff like that, too. But in the 62 games, he had a 40-13 and record and a 9-13 save percentage. I'll get into that kind of skyrocketed in the playoffs. So definitely what you want to see, great save percentage already. But you know you want to see your goalie play better in the playoffs because you're going to be playing better teams. So, yeah, Patrick Wah rounds out my roster there. Just like Jay's team, a lot of great players to to pick from. It was pretty easy for me to narrow it down to to seven or eight players cuz they were all darn good. But um yeah, without further ado, time for Claim to Fame number 1 and uh take it away, Jay.
0: One year ago there was trouble their skates jumped in the bus and headed something
1: the they were all headed
0: so pretty easy to come up with my claims of fame and they're pretty connected honestly I'm not gonna lie my first one is going to be focused on team offensive and my second one's gonna focus on a player that was a huge catalyst in that offense but I want to talk about my overwhelming offensive firepower. So just some stats from this year for you. They scored 330 goals, which was good for first in the NHL. There's a theme here. You'll you'll notice. (laughs) They had 74 power play goals first in the NHL. They had 18 shorthanded goals, which was first in the NHL. They had a 12 and a half shooting percentage, which was good for first in the NHL and To give you some context of some of the players that you're dealing with today, you have Esposito, who is 7th all-time in goals scored and 23rd all-time in assists. You have Busick, who is 28th all-time in goals scored and 30th all-time in assists. And Bobby Orr, despite a 12-year career, is 70th all-time in assists. So all of these guys, Hall of Fame scorers, including Orr, who's a defenseman, But you have Esposito, Busick, and you have Sanderson following up in the third line. Definitely more defensive-minded, but nonetheless was able to score. And you put all this together, you put it all on the same team, that means line after line after line is going to be coming at you and has the potential to put up points. If this series goes the way that I think it is between these two teams, it would not surprise me to have several games that have five, six goals I'm not going to be surprised if we have a six to five total in the course of this, you know, seven game, potential seven game series, obviously. But uh, yeah, my first claim to fame, overwhelming firepower. They dominated this league and they dominated the league in the year that we're talking about, along with having some bona fide all time great scores to back them up. So it wasn't just a lot of these teams that we talk about can be just great in the year that we're talking about. But all of these players that coalesced, that came together to be on this Bruins team, summoned through free agency, Bobby Orr was with the team since he was 14 years old, you know, like they came from all sources to create this offensive juggernaut that is absolutely going to roll over this Avalanche team, I think. So that is my first claim to fame.
1: Yeah, juggernaut is probably a good word for it. You know, they're just everybody can score. Um, you've got a guy leading the attack there, Bobby Orr, who really kind of had his way with, with most teams. I think he was just so much better, so much fundamentally sound than all the other players, which it showed on the ice. Um, I will say, you know, definitely a league, a time where there are less teams, uh, less competition, less players, but they still dominated. So you can't, You know, you can't just sweep that on the rug. It has to be said. But I do think that this team, this Avalanche team, is going to be just as fast and just as skilled. So I kind of piggybacked off of Jay's claim to fame number one there. Um, Obviously, I had to talk about my team's offensive scoring attack as well because it was so stout. It was so effective. And so my claim to fame number one is the league's top offensive attack. And, you know, they weren't the top scoring attack. They didn't have the most goals, but overall, they scored the most points. You know, they made a lot of great plays. They had a lot of games where they scored three or more goals. So, um, yeah, let's get into it. This was an all-time great team. They recorded 270 goals, which was good for fourth in the NHL at the time. They had 80 power play goals, which was good for second in the NHL. They finished with the best record in most points in the NHL, and this is why. These two stats here. You had three players in the top 11 in assists, Sakic with 64, Peter Forsberg with 62, and then Ray Bork with 52. Then you had three players in the top 20 in goals created, so not goals scored, but goals created, moving the puck, getting your teammates in the right opportunity, the right chance to score. You had Sackick, 45.9 goals created, Hayduke, 32.1, and then Forsberg, 31.0. So I do think that this team is a little bit deeper than Jay's team. Obviously those players at some point, Forsberg, Sackick, and hey Duke are are on the same line. They can be on the ice together, but they have other lines where they're Broken up a little bit to, you know, spread out the chances that they're going to score. They're going to pass the puck well. And this team only lost 10 of 57 games when scoring three goals or more in a game. So super impressive. There were a few ties in there. But to only lose 10 games out of 57 when you score three games or more, that's great. It means you're scoring and then your defense is holding up there under the bargain. The longest win streak of the season was nine games. If I do remember correctly, I think Boston had the same number, but Boston did it twice and they actually did it in the playoffs. So there you go, Jay, a little bone for you. But, and I did mention before, they are more battle tested. I mean, let's, you know, let's not kid ourselves. There were more teams in this 2000-2001 season and a lot of high profile players. Yeah, Colorado played one extra series in the Bruins, just how the playoffs were were formatted. Not the Bruins fault at all, but they did play much better teams. So All four teams that Colorado played in the playoffs were above 500 and recorded at least 90 points. So um, they were all good. They were all really good. They deserved to be there. There were a couple teams, obviously, that squeaked in. That's how every single playoff format works in every single team because it makes a great story when the underdog wins. But um, just to compare the St. Louis Blues, who Jays Boston Bruins played, they had a record of 28 wins. 39 losses and 11 ties. And then the Maple Leafs above 500, but not very much. 33 wins, 31 losses, 14 ties. So not quite the caliber. There were still a lot of great players on those teams, but yes, this Colorado team had tougher competition, made it to the Stanley Cup where the competition was as tough as it gets. Um, You know, not to mention that this was the dead puck era where there was a significant decline in scoring and the dead puck era was from 93 to 2005 so the fact that these guys were scoring at a clip that they did as often as they did and as special as they did man it was poetry in motion I loved watching it one pass to the other a lot of one-timers a lot of great great passes and a lot of slap shots a lot of them ended with Joe Sakic scoring the goal, but you can't forget about the guys passing the puck. I'm a huge assist guy. So yeah, man, a, a huge offensive scoring weapon. Not quite the scoring numbers that Boston has, but I still think that it's enough to keep them in the series. And I think that their discipline is what is going to what is going to uh, kind of set them up for success here when they do match up in our simulator.
0: Yeah, didn't love that whole point about tougher competition but i i respect it i <laughs> i understand it i understand it you know the, there's definitely something to be said about you know the eras that we're talking about we're talking about a 30 year difference between these two teams right and we're talking about this bruins team from 50 years ago today in 20 in 2021 right, so right but yeah it, it's Definitely just two different eras. I would, I'm pretty sure I threw the same thing at you when I had the Cubs and you were talking about the Yankees. So, yeah. yeah. No, I, and I, I think-,
1: think you, you mentioned it was like 30 year difference, you know, this or close to 30 year difference. This may be. If it's not our largest gap in between, it's 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 second or third.
0: Yeah, it's second or third. I'm pretty sure the Yankees and the Cubs were our biggest gap. And then yep. I think the Thunder and the Royals, Oscar Robertson versus Russell Westbrook might be our second. I think this might be our third, but definitely, definitely one of our biggest gaps and definitely something I'm going to be talking about in my X factor as well. Total respect to the offensive firepower of this team. You know, I think our, our points are fairly equal there, but yeah, that competition I think takes it a little bit over the edge, maybe. But there's nothing on Cam's team. There's nobody on Cam's team that matches my last claim to fame. And that's the man himself. It's Bobby Orr. Bobby Orr, man, I didn't I did not know anything about this guy before going in. I recognized the name, and that was about it. But he's a top five player of all time. And like, usually I'm hesitant about saying something like that, but he's comfortably a top five. And you could argue for a top three, I would say. And, you know, that's one of the best players we've ever talked about on the podcast. You know, we've talked about LeBron James. And, you know, he's bona fide. And obviously we've talked... With the dream team and stuff like that, I kind of considered that outside of you know the normal teams that we talk about. And so, but Bobby Orr is one of the greatest athletes of all time. Period. And it was interesting learning about him because I've never seen a player like Bobby Orr, and as good as he is, because I've never seen a player realize his destiny. Bobby Orr was a predestined superstar. He signed with the Bruins at age of fourteen and played for their junior leagues and at the age of 14 was deemed the savior of the franchise at when he was 14 years old like people in Boston everybody knew Bobby Orr is coming he's going to save the Boston Bruins it was absolutely incredible to hear people talk about waiting for Bobby Orr and it's like the whole franchise just kind of sat in stasis for a couple years didn't make big moves didn't really do anything until Bobby Orr was going to come along and save them and then they were going to get the pieces to help him win a championship you know that's how much people were looking forward to getting him on the ice in the NHL you know and so obviously as soon as possible at the age of 18 he was on the ice in the NHL playing for the Bruins and in the 71-72 season, he would lead the team and league in assists with 80. His teammate, Paul Esposito, was second with 67 assists. He was second in the league and on his team with 117 points, first being Paul Esposito. So you have your two top players in the entire league on this team. He was the All-Star Game MVP, the Norris Award winner, which is top defenseman. He was the Hart Award winner, that which is MVP of the league. And he was the Conn Smythe Award, which was playoff MVP. He helped the team allow the fourth least goals against and the third least shots against goal as well. So he wasn't just doing it offensively. He kept to his namesake. He was playing defense as well, along with that Hall of Fame goaltender behind him. To talk us some more about his career stats and how good of a player is he is, he's the youngest ever to win the Calder Trophy for Rookie of the Year in 1967. He won the Art Ross Trophy twice for leading the league in scoring. He won the Hart Award three years in a row from 1969 to 1972. So this was the last year, the third year in a row, the year that we're talking about, he had won the Hart Award. He was by and far the best player in the league during that stretch. He was an eight-time All-Star in his 12-year career. He won the Con Smythe Award twice, which, like I said, playoff MVP. First ever to do it two times. He had eight consecutive wins for norris trophy for top defenseman eight consecutive times that's crazy he won on best defenseman no breaks no breaks for this guy absolutely insane like can you imagine a player winning defensive player of the year in the nfl for eight years in a row you can't even do it twice in a row no way holy smokes this guy absolutely insane So he's the only player to ever win the Norris, Ross, Hart, and Conn Smythe award in a single season. Still the only player to ever do that. He is fourth all time in points per game average with 1.39, which is first among defensemen. And this is the stat that really gets me. And I sort of think of it as like the, this is my Bo Jackson stat of the day, because he is 11th all time in points scored. And you're like... How, how can one of the top five players of all time only be 11th in points scored? Well, you have to consider he only played 657 games during the course of his career. In the top 10, so the next 10 players above him, the next lowest total is 1,060. Oh my god. Of the players in the top 11, he has half as many games as the next lowest total pretty much. And managed to score just as many points as them. And most of them are in 1,400-plus games. You know, the lowest was was 1060. Most of them are 1,400-plus in the top 10. You know, like, he managed to get in the top 20 points scored on hundreds and hundreds of less games. It's absolutely insane how good he was, and that's why I call it the Bo Jackson effect. Because, my God, he would have blown these stats out of the water if he played another five years
1: i think that's why too you know he is regarded as as a top three player all time because people understand what he did for the sport what he did while he was there but i think they respect it now looking back like dude can you imagine if he played five more seasons could that have been 13 Mm -hmm. straight best defenseman of the year awards most likely so just just crazy Yeah. yeah that's you're blowing my mind here jay even though i already knew but
0: right yeah exactly it's it's just to hear it right and unfortunately he absolutely the way that he played he absolutely destroyed one of his knees i i can't remember which one it was but one knee is perfectly fine it's you know the the greatest knee on the planet the other one is absolutely destroyed he's had Two replacements on it. He's had, I think, a couple dozen surgeries on it over the course of his life to try to get it back in shape. But that's how hard he played. You know, like it, it's it's hard to imagine a player, you know, giving that much of his body to the sport these days. And you know, I don't necessarily condone it because he could have played another, you know, five ten years maybe if you know he had a different style of play. But you know, it's it, you got to appreciate it for what it is, and it's just greatness you know before your very eyes and so you know it, it's absolutely astonishing what he did to cap things off he was inducted into the hall of fame at age 31 the youngest ever after having the three-year waiting period waived by the committee he is one of 10 people to ever have that honor along with gordy howe wayne gretzky and mario lemieux he ranks among the greatest athletes of all time period let alone hockey for his natural abilities Larry Bird said it best. I, I watched him say that instead of looking up at the rafters when he was about to play a game for inspiration, instead of looking at the Celtics great like Bill Russell, he would look up for Bobby Orr's number four instead. That's how great Bobby Orr was.
1: Yeah, that's, that's saying something. One great to another, right, man?
0: If Larry Bird you know, looked to him for inspiration... You know what? That's that's enough for me.
1: Yeah, he's I mean, you can't go. That's why I didn't even for my second claim to fame. I thought about putting Sakic there because Sakic is a Hall of Famer in his own right. He he's probably one of the, the, you know, greatest 2030 players of all time. Um, I don't Mm -hmm. think that's crazy to say, but I just didn't feel like it would even be a good argument to have. I didn't think that his accolades would stack up that well with Orr's. And and I was right. Cause Bobby Orr was just insane. He was a scary guy. I I mean, I'm not a hockey player. I'm not a big guy. So a lot of guys are scary. He was a (laughs) scary dude. So, um, yeah, but just, just watching him play though. He loved the game. He loved the game so much. And I think that's a huge part of it. I don't want to compare, but it was like his upbringing you know just the the time the the what you felt of him getting ready to come into the NHL and finally getting there was a lot like mm. Sidney Crosby, you know, really really yeah. young kid that people knew was gonna be great and maybe would be the savior of a franchise and that's exactly what Sid did too. So man, Bobby ors a beast, yeah, we're gonna leave it at that. I'm gonna talk about a player in a position that I do have the edge to try and combat Bobby Orr. And that's going to be, you know, my Hall of Fame goaltender. So my claim to fame number two is the better Hall of Fame goaltender. To start it, I mean, yeah, Jay's got himself a Hall of Fame goaltender as well. Cheevers, he was a great player, um, obviously on a good team. He had a lot of help from his teammates, making sure that, you know, the puck didn't get in the back of the net. But, uh, you know, Patrick Waugh, 17 NHL season right here four-time Stanley Cup champ. He won his fourth and last this season that we're talking about. Patrick Waugh was a six-time All-Star, three-time Conn Smith winner, and three-time Vezina Trophy winner that goes to the best goalie. And those three Conn Smith trophies is an NHL record, not just for a goalie, for any player. So he has locked up the most Conn Smythe. trophies. Awards, which is super, super impressive. Um, His 2000-2001 stats, he had 40 wins. That was good for second in the NHL behind Martin Brodeur of the New Jersey Devils. We talked about him before. And his 2.22 um, average goals against per game was pretty solid. I believe it was top five, maybe top six in the NHL. Achievers, just a comp, uh, 2.5 goals against per game. So, very very close right i sometimes i mention it because i want to talk smack that's just showing that yeah that those are hall of fame numbers both of them so
0: oh yeah absolutely yeah
1: yeah absolutely so had to mention that um his four shutouts super solid he did have some shutouts in the playoffs as well but four shutouts for uh patrick wah and then in the playoffs i talked about before when i first mentioned wah You know, he was great in the regular season, but he absolutely stood on his head in the playoffs. You want to see the numbers not not go up for a goalie, but go down, right? You want the goals to go down, but you want your save percentage to go up, and that's what he did. A 9.34 save percentage went up just a little bit um, compared to his 9.13 during the regular season, and then the 2.22 goals against average went down to 1.7, so you're giving up less than two goals a game in the playoffs. That right there, I think, is the number one recipe for success, especially in the NHL in the playoffs. You're just you're handing your team a victory. You just hope they can score once, which you know this team they're gonna score at least once. So pretty impressive. But uh, he had a 16 and seven record in the playoffs with four more shutouts. Super impressive there. Two of the four shutouts came in the Stanley Cup Finals, actually, Game One where you really want to start out with the bang. That's exactly what he did. And Game 6, when their backs were against the wall a little bit, you know, in a potential elimination game. So it's exactly what you want to see from your goalie, whether he's a Hall of Famer or not. You, you want them to come out, play aggressive, and that's what he did. I think uh, Martin Brodeur, we were talking about, um, you know, in one of our past episodes, he would lay on his back a lot, kind of dive out, um, really get in your head, use that stick check, Patrick Wah is flashing the leather, man. He's flashing the leather. A lot of kick saves. He his fundamentals were always there. He was huge in the net, and uh, I'm sure was frustrating because you think you have him beat, top shelf or uh, you know glove side, but good luck because it's gonna be tough to score against him, just like a lot of teams can attest to. And uh, to end here, I've got some all-time records. Um, you know, Patrick Wah. I, I I think after I mentioned these safe to say he's probably the best goalie of all time, right? So, most NHL games played at the goaltending position with 247, most NHL playoff wins with 151, first NHL goaltender ever to win 500 games, and I mentioned before, he had the most Conn Smith Trophy wins ever with 3. And, uh, also to go with that first and only player to win that award with two different teams. So he won two with his previous team and then he won one with Colorado this season. So yeah, I don't know. I, I was never a guy that I thought I would be goalie when I played, I was a, a smaller guy. I always thought I'd be a defenseman, but you know, he, he makes you want to play goalie. How cool it is when you, you flash the leather where you just grab the glove you steal the puck out of the air, and then you show it to the ref like, hey, it's right here. Don't stop looking for it. You know, I've got it. And mm-hmm. I just think that was so cool. And um, it's one of the the coolest positions in hockey, too, because the boys just, your teammates really have your back. I think through good and bad, they know how tough that position is. So um, it was just cool to see Forsberg and Sackick and Drury and all those guys. Like, every time he made a save, they just go and tap him with the stick like, you know, good job, dude. You're you're really saving us here. You're keeping us in that game. So Patrick Waugh, one of, if not the greatest goalie ever. I had to mention him for sure. And uh, that was my claim to fame number two. Now on to uh, our X-Factors. And I, you know, I really do think we have some good ones here too. So let's keep it going, Jay.
0: I mean, great goalie, you know, is going to take you a long ways. And we both have great goalies. Yours, I think, has a few more all-time great stats to uh, to throw out there, but yeah, no, a lot of respect for both of these guys, and yeah, let's get into some X
1: factors. So
0: I'll kick things off with my X factor here, and I'm gonna keep it I'm gonna keep it fairly simple here. I'm gonna go with an intangible for my X factor today. I'm gonna go with the toughness of my Bruins. I'm gonna go with my big bad Bruins because that's what they were. They were a mean team. They were not afraid of anybody, anytime, off or on the ice, gloves or no gloves, masks, shoulder pads, it doesn't matter. You know, this this team was not afraid to get down and dirty and to make the plays that needed to happen. You know, I talked about Bobby Orr putting his body on the line on a daily basis. The man got knocked out in a game, came back two games later, came back the next game, sorry, came back two days later, played in the next game, which definitely should not have done. Absolutely not. But this team was tough. They played through injuries and they made their opponents hurt. When I first started watching this, and these guys were out there with no helmets, I was shocked.
1: Bunch of nut jobs, dude. They're crazy. <laughs>
0: Absol- absolutely wild. Absolutely wild stuff out there with no helmets. And then, to top it all up, you have people telling stories about Bobby Orr. The man didn't play with any shoulder pads. He, he, he played out there, broad-shouldered, taking these hits like <laughs> an absolute <laughs> madman. It's like, no wonder you only played in the NHL for 12 seasons. But, yeah, like this... Toughness, every team wants to be known for their toughness, right? Totally. They'll, they'll say and they'll totally. be like, you know what, we gotta be tough down low. You know, we gotta be ready for the ball. We gotta be tough in the red zone. Whatever it might be, everyone wants to be that. The pistons that we talked about earlier in the podcast, that was a team where we could talk about their toughness. Yep. This is another one of those teams that we can talk about their toughness, and they're gonna get back up from every punch you throw at them. And they're they're down three nothing, they're not gonna give up on that game too. You know, that's also what it relates to. So if there's gonna be one thing that's you're not gonna see coming out in the sim, but I believe it would be an X factor if they truly met up today, I think it would be the toughness of this ruins team.
1: One hundred percent. And it comes out every single game that, you know, and I definitely implore any and all the listeners just to type in, you know, go to YouTube. 1971 72 Boston Bruins, or even just type in the Boston Bruins, and this team will show up because they were scary. They were big, they were fast. And like you said, that toughness, that mentality, you got to have that. And, you know, I think a lot of hockey players do just because there's an opportunity for you to to take the puck to the face at any time and lose some teeth right
0: you have to yeah these
1: guys were a different different breed and if it was quantifiable then I know like especially in the matchup then I know this team my Colorado team would be in trouble because they were tough but they were a finesse team for the most part right clear concise passes but dude this Boston team is legit and um, that makes sense, but my X factor—it's Joe freaking Sackic. It, it had to be Joe Sackic. He's just a stud. Hockey needs a great captain to lead the team, right? If, if more than any sport, I will totally, totally go out on a limb and say that. And Sackic was that guy. He won faceoffs. He's—he's he's not afraid to initiate contact when he has to, and he played with his heart on his sleeve. And and that was something that you could totally see. And his. He had a wrist shot from hell, and it was considered to be, especially at the time, one of the best in the NHL, feared by Hall of Fame goalies at any time because it was so quick um, and so accurate. But he is the Avalanche all-time goals leader with 625. He's the all-time points leader as well with 1,641. He is a two-time cup winner. Just uh, kind of did it all for, for the time that he was he was given. And in this 2000-2001 season, he was top three in the NHL in game-winning goals with 12, which was actually first, and another franchise record. He was top three in total shots, points scored, his plus-minus, which is, you know, plus, you get a plus for any time you're on the ice, where whether you score or you're just sitting there watching your buddies do it he was top 3 in even strength goals, power play goals and goals per game. So every single offensive category you can think of as well as, you know, a somewhat defensive one in um, you know, offensive or even strength goals. Not quite defensive, but um, you know, it's not like a power play goal where your team's got to score, but um, I think you mentioned Bobby Orr was the only player to have like four trophies that he won in one year, right? Those four specific trophies. Those four specific, right. Because um, I, he has a very similar stat too. And he is one of, I think, I think he's the only player to win this handful of awards as well. He won the Hart Memorial Trophy, the Lady Bing Memorial Trophy, the Lester B. Pearson Award, and the Bud Light Plus Minus Award. And not to mention... Huh.
0: Yeah, Gotta have the Bud Light plus-minus Absolutely. <laughs> and I'm sure
1: they were enjoying some after, uh, after that Stanley Cup win. But And not to mention, you know, Bobby Orr and um, Joe Sackett can add the, obviously, Stanley Cup award, too. So, five trophies that these guys won, which is just insane. Plus, honestly, Sackett is just kind of a stand-up guy. Like... Just a a nice guy, if there was one, uh, a guy that his team, his coach totally trusted. I'm sure, Jay, you saw it, but, you know, this season, I mentioned before, was really about Ray Bork and his 22 years and his quest to win his Stanley Cup, and he finally got it. And what did the captain do? The first thing that a captain normally does is he hoists the cup, right? You earned it. You're the captain. You're the leader. Didn't even bother. Handed it right off to Ray Bork. And, uh, you know, I got the chills right now, but I love it. You know, I love (laughs) those kind of sports moments and it totally just encompassed and captured what this team meant. And it was teamwork, teamwork. Everybody's great. Everybody's, you know, future hall of famers, but you got to put in the work when you can. So, uh, Joe Sakic, he's my X factor, um, as well as my, my claim to fame number one too. But, uh, you know, I just, I couldn't leave him out. And his accomplishments uh, are just crazy. So that's it for my my Colorado Avalanche.
0: Yeah, definitely an all time great player. You no know, two ways about it, right? You know, definitely one of the best that has ever been on the ice. All those awards, all like winning the cup a couple times, leading an all time points leader. I mean, incredible, right? But yeah, no Saka is freaking fantastic and yeah Frickin it was just like, freaking fantastic you know like i think just both of these teams and you know like all i mean you, you said it best you know all of the the chill moments that you know you get when you watch both of these teams play is incredible you know the effort that they put in to go that extra mile to win i mean the bruins changing the league how how, how the nhl played games for the next you know five decades sack it, you know carrying on that legacy and yeah just bobby Orr going horizontal after just winning the you know the 1970 stanley cup you know just those moments were incredible you know it's why we have the big reason why we have this podcast is yeah, because absolutely. those moments inspire us so yeah no and, and inspire that so yeah colorado avalanche are now the team to Team that
1: comes to Denver, no and what do you think, Jay, now that we've, you know, we've covered three different episodes now in NHL, you know, we've covered a lot more football episodes and basketball and baseball as well. What do you think? Do you think this is the toughest sport in major competitive sports? Or are you still like, okay, football is, is more physical, it's a longer, uh, you know, maybe it's a longer season, or, um, you know, basketball is pretty tough mentally, what, what do you, where are you at on that?
0: No, if you want to talk about toughness, and if you want to talk about physical toughness, I think the NHL, and I've always sort of held that opinion, but I've never known it, but now that I've watched a lot of it, I truly do think that you have to have, like, more, like, For all sports, for all professional sports, you have to have a certain mentality about you, right? But I think for hockey especially, you have to have a certain physical toughness and you have to be ready to get hit. And because, you know, in football, you're not always the guy that gets tackled, you know. And you might be in the trenches, but, like, there's so much variation in what you can do on a football field. Every single person on the ice has to be ready to get hit and to hit. It, like goaltenders, defensemen, wingers, centermen, the whole crew has to be ready to go. And I think it's also a testament to, you know, the the line system that I didn't even know existed before we started doing hockey episodes and how quickly all of these players are rotating in and out and how much stamina it takes to play this game. So, yeah, no, I've, I've gained a lot of respect. and I, I would say, yeah, you have to be tougher than any other sport overall to, you know, to play a- NHL hockey.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm totally, you know, I'm, I'm with you there. I just want to see where you were at. Cause you know, now you've, you've kind of been introduced to hockey where I think you really do understand it a lot more now. So I just want to see what you thought. You know, I'm totally with you on that. These guys are just tough and scary, man. Can't really go around that. So, all right. Are you ready for, uh, for the end all be all time
0: to speak with our God? Yeah, time to speak (laughs) with our what-if sports gods and see who is going to win in a seven-game series between the 1971-72 Boston Bruins and the 2000-2001 Colorado Avalanche. So, ready to uh, to get this rolling? We have our home team. We are going to be giving home field advantage to the Boston Bruins, who had two more wins during the season than the Avalanche. You good with that, Cam?
1: Yep, totally good with it. We're going to stick with our... 2-3-2 Two three two format and uh yeah let's do it man I'm a little nervous this this episode I felt like was pretty business business oriented like we we both feel like our team should win so I'm excited for this one
0: yeah no there, I mean there's there's a lot of matchups where we go in and you know we'll we'll puff our chests and be like yeah you know I think I got this but at the end of the day you know you I definitely you know will lean one way or the other this one I'm pretty. I'm feeling. I'm feeling real good. But I know it's going to be a lot. I know it's going to be close. But I. I would absolutely love to get a win for this Bruins team. I've. I've come to. I've come to like them quite a lot. But without further ado, let's see who wins game number one. And the Bruins pull it away in overtime, oh. winning the game two to one. Absolutely. Incredible. It goes to double overtime. Ooh. It was one-to-one at the end of the third period. Both goals coming in the first period. You have a goal scored by Alex Tenge uh, eight and a half minutes in. And then a few minutes later, you have a goal scored by Phil Esposito, assisted by Wayne Cashman. Tenge was assisted by Forsberg and Scola. So yeah, one-to-one in period one. But you have John McKenzie faces Patrick Wah in round five. Oh, it's a shootout. Oh,
1: went to shootout. Yeah, double overtime.
0: Yeah, John McKenzie faces Patrick Waugh. In round five of the shootout, the ref blows his whistle. We got a play by play here from the What If Sports <laughs> The ref blows his whistle, and John McKenzie skates in slowly. Patrick Waugh commits to the shot, and it hits the twine goal. Oh, okay. man. <laughs> that, that That's is awesome. New, but that is. That is fantastic. Yeah, it looks like the Avalanche had two power plays they failed to complete. And the Bruins had one power play, three penalties each for both of the teams. And yeah, the Avalanche 2.6% shooting and the Bruins 4.8% shooting. The Avalanche 39 shots on goal with the Bruins 21. Wow. So Avalanche putting in the numbers, you know, they had they had their opportunities. But yeah, yeah. Well, our Hall of Fame goaltenders coming into play
1: coming to work that's three scoreless periods too by the way second third and one overtime where it was just deadlocked one to one that's uh that's a playoff game so shit all right boston's got the lead they're up 1-0 staying in boston man that's what i wanted though I, i need a lot of shots on goal let's see if it pans out for game two
0: all right let's see who wins game number two and the bruins pull out the win once again we did not go to overtime the bruins won seven to Oh shoot wow there's that high scoring game holy smokes i mean like i figured we would get one but we have a goal by phil esposito then we have mike walton for the bruins as well and then phil esposito again so the bruins went up 3-0 early on in the second period and then you have the bruins going up 4-0 with ken hodge assisted by don ahri And then you have the Avalanche start to come back. A goal by Adam Dedmarsh. Uh, And then another one taking the game to 5-1 by Ken Hodge. Martin Scola comes back, brings the game back to 2-5. Bobby Orr scoring on a power play, taking the game to 6-2. And then you have the Avalanche with a furious attempt at a comeback. You have Podin, Tenge, and Sakic all scoring within about a 10-minute period in the third period with the final goal coming as an empty net goal by Rick Smith in the last few seconds of the game, taking the game to 7-5. To
1: Damn. Yeah, a lot of scoring. They battled back. Shoot. And I, I forgot to mention, by the way, Alex Tangay. same with Skola. You mentioned Skola a couple of times now. They're both 21 years old at the time, so they're just a couple wow. of young bucks in, uh, in putting in some work, so... Shoot. All right, man. That's a good thing. This is a seven game series.
0: (laughs) All right. We are taking this next game to Colorado. So Colorado is going to have home field advantage here. Let's see who wins game number three and the home team takes it. We have the Colorado Avalanche winning game number three, three to two. And on the scoring side, here
1: we go, boys.
0: No, I just I wish we had won this one because the first goal in this one is my boy Derek Sanderson, Joe Namath of professional hockey, scoring a shorthanded goal. He did it. Would you look at that? <laughs> oh, man. But then the game gets tied-tied, one-to-one by Alex Tenge. And then Tenge scores again just five seconds later. Oh, my God. <laughs> wow, right off of the T- face-off. Yeah, off the face-off. Tenge scores twice in a row. Absolutely incredible. And then you have Bobby Orr tying the game 2-2 two two early in the third. And then you have, with five minutes to go, a goal scored by Peter Forsberg, assisted by Aaron Miller and Greg DeVry. So, wow, another really close game.
1: Another really close game. Another good performance by Tenge. I haven't heard Sakic yet, so I'm a little worried. Maybe he's just kind of being the general out there. But I need, I need some Sakic. Otherwise, I don't think I have a chance. See what games four brings.
0: Let's see you win. I mean, you're, you're still, it's two to one. You yeah. just won that game. We're good. So let's see who wins game number four. And the home team takes it once again for the fourth time in a row. We have the Ooh. Avalanche coming out on top six to four. Absolutely incredible. It was tied four to four going into the second or going into the third period. Sorry. And then the Avalanche would score twice in. The third period, one of those was an empty net goal by Peter Forsberg, but ton of scoring in the first period. You have Phil Esposito, then to Ken Hodge, bringing the Bruins to 2-0. Then you have Skotla bringing a comeback, and Tenge, absolutely the MVP for you so far with how many times I've mentioned his name, tying the game 2-2. Then you have Terry O'Reilly for the Bruins, uh, scores on a rebound assist by Bobby Orr. Of course, Bobby Orr's name has been attached to a lot of these assists. Then you have the game tied 3-3 by Scola. And then Phil Espicito takes the game to 4-3 before the Avalanche come back. These, these goals are back and forth every single time. You have Ville Nieminen shoots and scores on the rebound assist by John Clem, taking the game to 4-4. And then you have Scott Parker scoring eight minutes into the third period off of an assist by Raymond Bork and Alex Tange, winning the game essentially with, like I said, Peter Forsberg with the empty net goal.
1: Alright, so a couple guys, sorry, fellas, I didn't give them any shout outs, but um, you know, there's it's a it's a lot of players on these teams. You got like over 30 players on the roster, so never surprised when some of the guys we don't talk about score or they're involved in assists. Um not too surprised, but again, have not said. Joe Sakic's name so getting a little worried here um not too worried it's the series is tied but where is he at where is he at that's my question
0: yeah Joe Sackick no I think he it looks like we have three shots on goal but no goals and no assists in this game but the game is tied two to two so let's see who wins game number five once again Colorado are we going to keep the streak going all home games this time Let's, let's find let's
1: go out. third game in Colorado
0: Third win for Colorado. The series is 3-2 to two in favor of Colorado. We have the home team scoring six goals to the Bruins' four goals. You have four goals scored in the first period. Phil Esposito, Raymond Bork, Derek Sanderson, and Sean Podine. So 2-2 two to two going into the second. Then you have Alex Tenge, Bobby Orr, Raymond Bork, Alex Tenge. Alex Tenge, that's the third time. No, that's just the second time I've mentioned him so far. Oh my gosh. But yeah. So two goals on this one. And then in the third period, you have a goal scored by Wayne Cashman by the Bruins taking it four to five. But then on a power play with just a few minutes left, you have Nieminen shooting and scoring on a rebound assisted by Peter Forsberg, sealing the game six to four for the Avalanche.
1: Crazy. All right. That's I, I'm glad to hear it. Um, I think Sackix just, yeah, distributing. You got Forsberg probably laying some wood out there. I haven't really mentioned uh Chris Drury too much either, but you know, you definitely have your guys doing work, and I've got some of the third, fourth line guys doing some work along with Patrick Wad just doing enough. So I'm happy. I'm happy. Up three to two, back to Boston, tough place to win. We'll see you here back to Boston. I think my boys got the W
0: can they get one win it has been i'm you know i'm feeling pretty good it's been a home win every single time both of these teams definitely showing up for their home crowds let's see who wins game number 6 and the, the Boston Bruins pull it out, 5-2. <laughs> to two. Of course, we got to take it to seven games. You knew that, Cam. You yeah. knew it was going to go to seven. It made sense. <laughs> yeah, 5-2 to two this one, so a pretty decent win by your Bruins. You have John Busick, first time I've called that name, assisted by Bobby Orr. Phil Esposito taking it to 2-0 in the first period. Then you have him taking it to 3-0, 4-0 in the second. And then Joe Sakic with his first goal of the series coming in at the end of the second period and then you have Busek scoring again and then you have Hayduk scoring the final goal of the game with uh, about 4 minutes into the third period before the Bruins pull it out 5 to 2.
1: Yeah, I'm sure at that point they uh they took out Wah, put the extra skater on the ice and basically a power play goal then at that point, but um yeah, I'm good. I'm glad to see Hayduk Sakic finally in the mix. Game 7 best two two words in sports especially hockey so my heart's pumping jay heart's pumping let's see if i finally if if we could take one that'd be great but obviously the theme here home team home ice is uh is the factor so we'll
0: see Mm -hmm. and i will say that this is the first time i've been keeping on eye on shots on gold this is the first time that the bruins have outshot the avalanche avalanche only 27 shots on goal in this one into Ooh. the Bruins, thirty-seven. So I thought that was an interesting note. So, but yeah. So we'll see. If they win that battle again. I think they've got Game Seven locked up. But you ready to uh, you ready to roll the dice here, bud? Roll the dice. Let's go. Game number seven, and the Avalanche win it. No the first away win, <laughs> and the Avalanche win seven to three. Absolutely murdering the Bruins at home. Oh my wow. goodness. You have Hayduke scoring the only goal in the first period. So it's 1-0 at the end of the first. Then you have Sanderson tying the game on an assist by Busick and Bobby Orr tying it one-to-one and then the Avalanche come to play. You have Niemann, you have Podine, you have Hayduke, and Niemann once again four goals in a row. To take the game five to one by the end of the second. Then you have Hayduke scoring again for a hat trick. That is the first and only hat trick of the series going to Hayduke. Then you have Wayne Cashman scoring for the Bruins trying to come back. You have Joe Clem scoring for the Avalanche, taking it to seven two, and then Phil Esposito taking the last goal to bring it up to an abysmal three to seven for the Bruins. Wow. We
1: didn't see it coming. Obviously, I hoped. Game seven, wow. seven to three. That's a yeah, that's a blowout. How many? Uh, what do you got that for is, the shots on goal there?
0: You got the Avalanche with forty three shots on goal. Boston Bruins not far behind uh, with thirty one. Um, I mean, comparatively, the Avalanche have dominated in that category. They've had a ton more shots on goal throughout the entire series. So ten, honestly, or twelve. My mistake is not actually that bad. But yeah, no, the the Bruins. Just couldn't couldn't match the output. Patrick Wong with a ninety percent saving percentage, but you have Jerry Cheevers with an eighty three point seven save percentage. Just not gonna cut it with that many shots on goal. But yeah, two amazing teams though. Like yeah, absolute, hell of a series. Like, what a show! I mean, like to to like, I I just love thinking like seeing it in my mind and seeing these goals and seeing. Bobby Orr go face to face with Joe Sakic on on the defensive side, like you know, and, and getting getting you know getting shut down. But you have all these other you have Hey Duke stepping up with a hat trick in the final game to put the game over the edge and fantastic win. Absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't
1: have uh, couldn't have said it any better, Jay. Like I love that we do the simulator because it does. Hopefully, our listeners too. It totally gives you a picture, right? It paints a picture in your head and. To me, just like you said, you know, we had our, our, our centers kind of facing off a little bit. You know, you had uh, Sackic, who definitely wasn't in the, uh, you know, wasn't in the scoring category too much, the scoring column. But it's probably because you had Phil Esposito, both of them matching up against each other on face-offs. Definitely love to, uh, you know, you like to see our goalies save percentage up a little bit. But we, we had a feeling it'd be a pretty high-scoring game but yeah i I totally get a feeling that this was a bone crushing series, but still a lot of shots on goal, kind of a testament to what I said before with this this avalanche team. just there are so many guys who are skilled with the puck and can either score or put their teammate in a position to score and obviously, with all the shots on goal, ultimately that was enough, but you know i'm I'm sure my boys were hurting after this uh after this series playing against your your bruisers so yeah man that was fun that was fun
0: yeah no that was a good one that that was definitely um a a very good matchup yeah no I I definitely think these two teams were very well matched for each other I mean you're looking at these totals like that first game that two to one was an anomaly like you're looking at seven to five three to two six to four six to four five to two seven to three like crazy scoring games and a lot of these you know ending with empty net goals you know that so bringing that total down from a two goal difference to a one goal difference it is incredible you know so both of these teams you know like yeah i just i i i love to think about these two teams and you know the, the they're the same in a lot of ways in their offensive firepower but the subtle differences too you know absolutely incredible but yeah no congrats to you In you know, I think this is your first win in a little while. Well, you won our uh, Bo Jackson, Deion Sanders won pretty handedly. So I guess I'm not going to congratulate you too much, but um,
1: it was a good, good team win. But you're right. It's been a little bit
0: good win for our first Colorado representation on the uh, on the podcast, I think. But yeah, that pretty much wraps up today's episode. I think, Cam, we're leaning Major League Baseball for our next episode.
1: Yeah, I think in a couple weeks, we're going to have the World Series. Um, it's going to be coming up pretty quick. Unfortunately for my Chicago friends, my Illinois friends, the White Sox have been eliminated. I'm not surprised. Sorry, totally talking smack right now. I'm not surprised. You know, Brewers are out too. That I am surprised with. But uh, yeah, should still be a good World Series. Whoever gets there, that should be fun. And uh, yeah, it's a couple weeks now.
0: Yeah, I got a couple of weeks for that. A couple of weeks, you know, obviously, we're releasing episodes every two weeks. So make sure you keep an eye on that for our next episode. But yeah, probably going to talk some baseball. But as always, you know, we have some time in between when an episode releases and when our next episode comes out. So if you have a baseball idea, shoot us a message. You know, you're inspired by, you know, some teams that might be in the playoffs or, you know, some teams that from these franchises that are currently in the playoffs. We'd love to, you know, match that up a little bit. But just an idea. Otherwise, if you have any ideas at all, you know, for basketball, any sport, really, you know, I think once we dive into baseball, we match up with the World Series, you know, we're going to be taking a baseball break, you have the NBA season starting up. But, you know, we. I think, you know, this might be a good opportunity for us to branch out again, like we did for hockey, however many weeks ago. So, um, but yeah, thank you so much for joining us on episode number 22 of the Ultimate Sports Matchup. As always, two historic sports teams came into battle, but only one left as the ultimate champion. If you want to continue to travel back through the sports time continuum to help us create some of the best what if sports mashups of all time, follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Ultimate Sports Mashup. Until the next sport in the next decade, I've been Jay. And I'm Cam. And we'll see you next time.